You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. In 2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Welcome to the Longform Podcast. I am Evan Ratliff from The Atavist, and I'm joined, as always, by Max Linsky and Aaron Lambert from Longform. Hey, Evan. How you doing, Evan? Yes. Max, tell us about our sponsor. Our sponsor, as it was last week, tinyletter.com. The, uh, it's an incredibly simple, minimalist, powerful way to send an email newsletter. You can even get people to pay for it. The people at MailChimp do it. It's awesome. We thank them. Use it. It's great. They do good stuff over there at MailChimp. They really do. This thing's actually great. I mean, it, they're, uh, it's awesome that they're sponsoring the podcast. It's also just awesome. Yeah, I find that email is actually like a pretty underused uh, distribution channel for actually getting people to read something. Yeah, a bunch of writers use it for sure. Uh, this week, I did the interview. Who did I talk to? I talked to Mina Kimes from Fortune Magazine. Mina is someone whose writing I enjoy, and uh, she has a new feature actually that's on the newsstand right now. I think it's uh, I think the issue is like most powerful women or something like that. I'm maybe possibly totally wrong about what that is, <laughs> um, but it's about really crazy case of uh, doctors who were injecting people's spines with cement uh, when they were not supposed to be. The, that story is actually crazier than it sounds. Which yeah. Is amazing. Yeah, um, and uh, it was a great interview, so I hope you guys like it. I'm here with uh, Mina Kimes from uh, Fortune Magazine. Hello. Hello, Mina. Just got a little coffee. It's Columbus Day. Um, we were earlier discussing uh, holidays, which you can't really celebrate if you don't work for someone who gives you off holidays. Um, so both of us doing a little work today. Um, but thank you for coming to Dumbo, Mina. Thanks for having me. Um, so I actually don't really know. I mean, I've, I came across your writing in the last year or two um, from stuff you did in Fortune, but I don't actually know that much about what you are doing before. What, where did you start out? Uh, well, I started out writing for a magazine called Fortune Small Business that no longer exists. It was closed and kind of the great magazine die off of 2008-2009. So that was my first job in journalism, and I've been at Fortune since... August or September 2008. So wow. I actually started, um, I think it was the week before Lehman went down, which was actually across the street from us at uh, Time Inc. That was kind of naturally the story that I and a lot of other young reporters probably at the time were drawn to. Um, however, 
Uh, I didn't really know a lot about finance at the time, given that I didn't take mathematics or economics in college. What did you study in college? I studied English. Ah, okay. It's incredibly useful. Um, <laughs> you know, I actually was just telling something the other day. I remember being a kid and taking, I never liked math, and I was in a math class in maybe fifth or sixth grade, and they have that poster on the wall that's, what am I ever going to use math for? And it has like 50 jobs listed yeah. and showing you. And I remember going up to the teacher and being like, half these jobs are engineering jobs. <laughs> such a bogus poster. And then, of course, this great ir- irony is that I now am very interested in you know, economics and finance. When you, when you, before you were working professionally in business journalism, like, what did you think business journalism was? Um, I don't know if I thought anything about journalism or you know I was in high school I was mostly reading uh, music and arts journalism Mm. I think like a lot of college students you know we when I'm talking to young aspiring journalists very few of them are reading the Wall Street Journal or you know some of them are familiar with Michael Lewis and some of the more well-known business writers but you know very few of them are really paying attention to the business news um, which I think you know it'd be great if we could somehow find a way to encourage more young people to pay attention to well, I feel like for the first time ever, and it's sort of a dark thing to say, there's a real hook as to why you should be interested in economics. Um, perhaps you always should have been interested in economics, but there's a pretty human face to uh, what economics can do to the world in relatively small period of time. Um, but I'm interested as someone who came in without that college background, without like a background in hard economics. How did you how did you get yourself up to speed starting on that stuff? Yeah, so Fortune um, is a place that doesn't have beats, per se. I mean, people have sort of specialties and interests, but we all write about everything, really, and, or have the capacity to. So when I started out, um, one of the editors there who edited our investing section asked me if I was interested in helping them out with you know, these stories about investing in the markets and bonds, and me sort of not knowing anything about it immediately said yes. Um, and it was kind of just being thrown into it and learning on the job. I would say um, I started reading the journal on a regular basis when I didn't understand something. I would talk to someone or look it up, which meant it took me about five hours to read the Wall Street Journal. <laughs> um, and, you know, I, I gradually I acquired a pretty good working knowledge of sort of how finance works, what bonds are, what stocks are, how they work, how investing happens and how it impacts businesses how rapid was your ability to sort of soak this stuff up i mean were we talking about like a period of months years i would say months to just acquire kind of a working knowledge did you during those months and sort of ongoing did it worry you that you were writing about people who were deeper in this game than you were i think um it didn't worry me because i was pretty honest with most of you i was interviewing that i didn't know a lot about what I was asking them, which is something that I think a lot of young reporters sort of struggle with, you know, should I show my hand or sort of reveal my ignorance, and uh, a lot of editors have encouraged me to be honest about my own knowledge going into these situations, and that really helped me out in the beginning, because I found that most people were actually very willing to explain how these things worked in pretty clear terms. Interesting. And did you ever feel like you were being hoodwinked by people or spun? Um... Definitely. But <laughs> I learned to recognize that pretty quickly by talking to more than one person about certain things. The, the first story I, I read by you was about um, sort of a, a market doomsayer. Uh, Bob Arias? Bob Arias, yeah. That, that was one of the first ones that I, that I saw from you. And it's an unusual piece. Um, 
actually not totally outside of the line of some of the stuff that Michael Lewis has written about someone who has pretty consistently bet against dominant wisdom in the market. How, how do you how do you come across a piece like that? Uh, so, being someone who writes pretty frequently about investing in the investor community, you kind of know who the players are. Yeah. You're constantly looking at the numbers to see who's performing well. Um, yeah. Bob Rees is a guy who's, I think he had, the time, when I wrote the story, he had the top performing fund over the last 25 years. So, I, so you're actually watching this in real time, the people yeah, who Yeah, every are, now and then I'll check in and just see who's doing well, who's not doing well, who's making big bets. And you look at that on a personal level, not like a fund level, like you would have known his name going in? Um, you kind of, if you write about these, you know, you kind of just know who the managers are, who the great investors are in the hedge fund and mutual fund world. Yeah. Um, and then I'll check the numbers of the funds they manage to see who's doing extraordinarily well or bad, and that's usually where you get your stories. How many people are at that sort of elite level of investing where, like, they would be the subject of a profile of their fund or something? I would say maybe about 40 to 50 uh-huh. hedge and mutual fund managers are, I think, managing enough money um, and interesting enough to kind of merit greater attention. Is there, like, um, a competition among people who are covering this for, like, who's going to get this guy's profile? I mean, that's not a huge pool considering how much financial journalism there is. I would say definitely with regards to hedge fund managers, because some of them are sort of notoriously secretive. I mean, uh, Vanity Fair did a profile of Steve Cohen at SEC a couple years ago, and he's a guy who almost never comes out of the woodwork. Um, Seth Klarman... What's the fun where they practice really radical honesty? Oh, that's a that's Bridgewater, which uh, Brid- is, yeah, I think one of the biggest hedge funds. And it is one of the biggest hedge funds in the world. They're in Connecticut, and um, that guy Ray Dalio is his name has been actually profiled. A New Yorker, lot. yeah. See, I I only, I only know people who've made it to the position of a New Yorker profile. Um, I, I'm th- I'd like to start practicing radical honesty in this <laughs> office, actually. Uh, <laughs> that, from what I've heard of people there, the radical honesty usually goes in one direction. But Yeah, I was going to say, it, it seemed like I, whenever I hear that described, I'm like, I want a video of someone like actually at like the board meeting where this is actually happening, where <laughs> everyone's actually like telling the CEO they don't like him. And... Well, that's the thing about great investors is, um, you know, some of them are just aren't that interesting. Not everyone is like, Dalio or Buffett or, you know, the various sort of colorful figures in finance. Some of them just go in and analyze numbers and, you know, a lot of them are using mostly now technology, I think, to achieve greater returns. And mm-hmm. I mean, there's stories there, definitely, but as far as appealing to a general audience, it might not be as interesting. I mean, that's an interesting idea, which is that as the market becomes more, as trading becomes more and more automated and more and more computer-based, which I have no idea what I'm fucking talking about. No, Maybe that's already right happened, ahead. but um, the, there's going to be less... We almost demand, as readers, a, sort of a personal hook. No one wants to read mm-hmm. about um, the fund uh, that's propelled by Hal. Right? You want to read about a person. Um, and if there are no longer personalities associated with business and finance, will will there be an audience for writing about them? Good question. Bum, bum, bum. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I think, you know, with regards to, so what we're kind of talking about is quants and, yeah. you know, they who use these mathematical models really too. And, but the thing is, at the end of the day, if you follow the money, which is sort of what we're in the business of doing um, as journalists, you're always going to get to a human decision. So right. if there's a guy out there who is making investments solely on the basis of, you know, technology and computer models and whatnot, 
he's a guy who believes in computer models more than human decision making and that says something and you know he's probably an interesting guy um so at the end of the day i'll be, to quote Mitt Romney <laughs> corporations are people this 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 interview is not going to age well <laughs> <laughs> um you know you, it always ends with a person making a decision, and that's something that I always think about when I'm writing my stories. Interesting. So at a certain point, even if we're ruled by computer trading lords, someone built the computer trading lords. Someone someone oversees the, the automation of the, the whole thing. And someone is making a lot of money off of them. Yeah. So. Is that is that something that, that interests you, is the world of technology as it's starting to crash into business and as like high-frequency trading mm-hmm. and that kind of stuff? And have you had to educate yourself again to sort of keep up with that stuff absolutely i mean it's changing on such a rapid basis um you know it's something that has increasingly has the ability to move markets in disastrous ways um you know this summer an exchange broker just wiped out i think it was something like four or five hundred million dollars in value in a single day because of a computer mistake basically right um you know when you lose that kind of money or that kind of money is moved around it always has human ramifications in terms of people's jobs sure um, prestige of a company so it's something that's definitely interesting well and it's also interesting to me seeing how how little control we place on people even after we create a system that in certain ways cuts humans out of the loop Mm -hmm. we've still left a lot of humans with their finger on a trigger that could could move a lot of market uh do you feel any personal try to think of this have you had ethical issues that have come into play do you ever feel like wow i'm propping you know i'm part of a larger financial system that i don't necessarily know if i agree with mm-hmm. i you mean, mean you mean as a financial journalist? as a financial journalist yeah. do, do do your personal opinions of wall street and, and the markets ever come into play in terms of your writing or is this like a cold objective pursuit for you um I would say it's definitely objective. Uh, you know, there I've actually encountered a lot of people who have asked me about my attitudes towards you know, capitalism or mm-hmm. Wall Street in general. And, you know, there are companies on Wall Street that are doing good things. There are companies that are doing bad things. At Fortune, um, our job is to look at both and to explain why. And, and I think in many cases, um, when it comes to the ones who are doing bad things, you know, it takes people like us and other financial journalists to expose and question them. Mm-hmm. So I see our role as um, sort of the revealer in this world. That's actually a, a pretty good um, segue into um, the feature that you have out now, which I think actually is on newsstands today. It's on newsstands, yeah. I think it's in, uh, in print October 8th, and I was like, it's oh my our, God, the synergy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so much synergy. Uh, it's our most powerful women issue is on the cover. So. Uh, okay. So if you see most powerful women, what what is the title of the piece? It's called Bad to the Bone. Bad to the Bone. Okay. It came out on the internet a few weeks ago, which has thankfully allowed me to read it before um, coming in. So tell me a little bit about just a short overview of the story, sure. what, what, what you brought to light here. Yeah. So um, this is a story about a company called Synthes. Uh, that was a medical device maker. They made um, kind of plates and screws, things you put in um, to stabilize broken bones and things like that. And they were doing about $4 billion a year, which is not terribly large uh, by our standards, uh, by which I mean the companies that we usually write about. Well, yeah, I, I of my, course, my own my a personal... larger medical supply company. 
but that's not part of the podcast. By my personal standards, for Blade Runner. Um, and the company, um, a couple of years ago, was char- criminally charged by Department of Justice uh, with running unauthorized clinical trials of a device, a bone cement, uh, that was intended by them to go into the spine on people. Um, three people died during these clinical trials. Uh, which the DOJ brought to light, and uh, four executives of the company were ultimately sentenced to prison in uh, November and December of 2011, which is what caught my eye. So the story is kind of about um, the series of decisions of the company that led to sort of this terrible activity um, and kind of the ramifications for the healthcare industry and also, uh, I think, the law, really. I mean... Uh, the story you just told is crazy, and if you if you read the story, it's actually way crazier than on a bunch of levels. Uh, there's all sorts of interesting characters. The guy who's the CEO is this uh, Swiss mystery figure who I, I can't even sort of get into like how bizarre some of the stuff stuff is. But I, well, I guess you sort of answer what my first question would be: When did when did you first get exposed to this story? So I am. Regularly, read, I have a Google reader with all the sort of business headlines scrolling always, and then I'll pick out things that I'm interested in from Bloomberg, the Journal, the Times. Um, and it caught my eye that winter when the executives were sentenced. Um, I think, as everyone knows, you know, executives are rarely sentenced to prison, which is something I think a lot of people have been concerned about since the financial crisis and you know after some of the activities going on and banks have come to light you know why don't exec individual executives ever pay the price so here is a case where four executives did go to prison and not only that they went to prison under a provisional law that no one had been sentenced to prison for and one of them goes for longer than the maximum term they were actually all sentenced above the recommended federal guidelines um the and it they were sentenced up, by the way, less than a year each. So yeah, you know, you hear that, like and nine months it sounds like six nothing. Months, yeah. But the judge had never sentenced somebody above the guidelines, so it was mm-hmm. kind of sending a message. Um, and that, and also the fact that no one had gone to prison when they pled guilty. Um, so that came, the news story came out in December. Um, less than a day and a half later, so I saw this as I was scrolling. The company's shareholders agreed to get bought out by Johnson and Johnson for twenty billion dollars. Um, is the biggest acquisition in J&J's history. And J&J is a company that I've written about in the past. Um, 2010, I did a story kind of investigating what was going on at the company during all of their recalls, so I have a pretty good familiarity with them. So the kind of concurrence of the two stories caught my eye. Interesting. So what was your first step into, like, making this a... I mean, it's a pretty big feature. I mean, it was like 8,000 words. It's it's, yeah, it's, it's it's a pretty in-depth investigation. And uh, you got pretty amazing access to a lot of these people. Who who was the first person from within the story that you were able to make contact with? Sure. Um, I would say the people who didn't do anything wrong were the first <laughs> to come forward, as often is the case. Yeah. Um, you know, my process is I actually do a lot of reading before I reach out to people. Some journalists don't like to do it that way. Um, uh-huh. So I, I spent several weeks just reading about the company, um, everything that had been written about them, trying to get access to all of the legal and government documents that I could, and sort of developing a um, familiarity with the, that particular corner of the medical device world before I started trying to contact them. How did you, how did you sell, sell your editor on 
two weeks of uh, pre-interview reading, what point did you have to say, I see a story here, and what did what story did you sell to your editor? Uh, I pitched it probably about a weekend, so I usually get about a few days of just kind of figuring out for a story there before I actually write. I usually actually write my pitches mm -hmm. internally, and I usually spend about three months, two to three months on a story, so it's not unheard of for me to spend a great deal of time reading. Um, and, you know, I, I told him it was a mystery, and it was a mystery to me, because you read about, you read these headlines of companies that do these things, or people at companies, rather, that do these things, and the first question to me is always why, you know, why sure. would a person think this is okay? And um, why would a billionaire risk jail time to add, I think I want, I think what they said, the initial, the market for this cement was going to be like $20 million a year at about 50% profit, I mean talking about people who are literally multi-billionaires risking prison time for, that would be like me risking prison time for $10 comparatively. <laughs> um, so at what point did you realize that there were these sort of deeper levels to the story? Like the, I'm sort of talking specifically, of, there's this long um, labyrinthine FDA uh, sort of, you really need to know a decent amount about how the yeah. FDA works to under, understand this story. Um, where they had gotten approved the use of this cement. This is literally we're talking about injecting people with cement, which is actually, I guess, safe for certain mm -hmm. joints, but not the spine. Were you tracking this through court records? Sure. Yeah. So the FDA website has a lot of records in terms of applications. Um, when things go wrong, companies have to report them to the FDA, so you can get a lot of detail that way. They're called adverse events. Mm -hmm. So they're on various databases. Um, the FDA, when they find something wrong, sends out warning letters. Um, you know, the FDA is a wonderful resource um, because everything is pretty well documented. In the end, the company, uh, at the very end, an invest FDA investigator showed up unannounced and conducted like a two-month investigation. So I was able to FOIA his notes from the FDA, and those were quite useful as well. Um, that moment where the FDA guy just shows up there and is like, we're doing it. Like, that's my nightmare that's going to happen at my apartment for like the IRS is just going to show up and say like, let's get it on like, five years now. Um, because up until then, it almost seems like they're going to get away with it on yeah. a certain level. I mean, some of the details of the story are totally insane. There's the detail of the guy, one of the guys who was part of it, the failed test on a pig where they kill the pig by injecting its spine with cement, later kills a human doing the same thing. What was amazing about that, actually, um, that didn't come to light until this summer, so after I had already finished the story and it uh -huh. had been mostly written, I wrote it in the spring. And, um, he, so the company conducted these trials in 2003, 2004. They were indicted in June of 2009. Uh, the they started getting investigated years before then. These things take a long time. This doctor that you're talking about, this surgeon, he uh, did this operation weeks after the indictment. So the company had already been criminally indicted. Um, and, you know, so he filed a report about death, and this is how you know, I was able right. to piece it together. But this woman who, you know, she was a 58-year-old woman who died on the operating table. Her family obviously had no idea, and didn't even know about it until a couple of years later. Mm -hmm. So um, I think with regards to kind of the complexity of the story in my process, um, so it always starts with a question, which is, you know, why do they do it? But 
typically these questions beget other questions as I report. Um, yeah. There were four executives who were indicted, and you know, from the very beginning, I was trying to figure out who they were, why did they do this, yada yada. And one of the things, once I'd started getting employees at the company who were close to the project or involved in it to talk to me, that really surprised me was that um, no one blamed them. Interesting. All of the employees actually loved them. Were you the first person who had been in contact with them about this stuff? Most of them, yeah. Yeah. And what was their reaction when they heard that you were writing a story about their now jailed bosses? Um, I think... It's sort of the same with um, most of these kinds of stories, which is that some people want to set their records straight about yeah. certain things that have been reported or not. Um, some want to make sure they're able to clear their own name or establish mm-hmm. you know, the motivations of their friends. Um, and a lot of them just wanted to make sure I got it right. Oh, and I think that's often the sentiment you encounter when you do these kinds of stories and you're talking to people who are in the weeds. They just want to make sure you tell it correctly. So knowing knowing all this stuff, I'm actually pretty intrigued both by the detail that the people who worked for him don't blame these guys, and that that detail doesn't appear in the story. Mm-hmm. Um, t- tell me about sure, that. Sure. Yeah. So I think when I first heard that, my instinct was, oh, I want to write about these guys. You know, why would these good guys do this? Yeah. That was my. So most of my stories are kind of positing a question and then trying to answer that question. So at first I was like, that that's the question. But as I gathered more document evidence and started seeing um, bits of information, you know, about the CEO being present at a lot of early meetings, um, the nature of the meetings, the way in which decision, I, I realized that it was less interesting to me as to why these guys, because, you know, like a lot of the people who make bad decisions in corporate America are not bad people. On some and, level. On some level. And, you know, it's interesting, but what's more interesting or what was more interesting to me in this case was how is this corporation structured and run so that people feel enabled to make these decisions? How is the culture of medical devices writ large enabling people to make these decisions? And I think those were the questions that I ultimately tried to answer. When when the company is a a hedge fund and people uh, cheat the law for money, we usually cite greed as the Mm -hmm. culprit and in this case these men are are scientists really the the men who are running this company do you draw any distinction between a crime like this and and a financial crime or is Mm -hmm. money still the root cause for this well money is always the root cause insofar as people want to preserve their jobs i don't think they were envisioning you know untold riches or Mm -hmm. money that would necessarily flow directly towards them I would actually um, pinpoint this more on complacency, um, sort of how the diffusion of responsibility inside a company can lead to these problematic decisions and sort of the ignorance of warnings and whatnot. You know, a lot of times, I think these terrible, terrible mistakes that happen at companies can originate in pretty small mistakes and they sort of snowball. it, a lot of times it happens when people think that um, you know their decisions won't be traced back to them, that everybody's doing it, which I think was really the case here. Right, uh, which is in a certain way true, which is mm-hmm. everyone is trying to push their drugs through with the minimum FDA interference. Everyone is trying to get their drugs to the market at the same time or at the soonest possible time, and everybody would like to 
would like their products to succeed. Um, the difference in this case seems to be how much risk you're willing to take as a company to do that. And there's certainly small risks that are along the way, but this seems like a massive risk mm-hmm. to take. Uh, well, one thing that I've you know, explained to some people when they ask me, you know, why, why would these guys do this? Why would this company do this stupid thing? Is that... You know, in, in the first part of the unauthorized clinical trials that took place, most of the people going into the surgery were quite old. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the first three people that died were 70, I think 83 and 83. And there's an expectation when you're going into surgery and you're old, you know, people might not survive or with clinical trials. Um, as a result, I think certain, <clears throat> sorry, um, expectations are normalized. Um, it's not necessarily surprising to people or perceived Mm -hmm. as a risk or perceived as necessarily connected to the device. Um, One of the things that I sort of uh, came across in this story or or really sort of realized in this story is um, during my reporting process is how important it is not to devalue life just because it's reached a certain tenure, if that makes sense. Um, I like to believe that I've always thought that, but (laughs) (laughs) decided to stop hating old people. (laughs) No, I guess what I mean is that, you know, it doesn't, one of the points that I wanted to make is that regardless of somebody's age or health, they deserve the same protections and the same amount of knowledge going into a procedure. You know, one of the things that didn't make it into the story is that the third woman who died um, was 83 and, you know, her daughter was devastated. Her family was devastated. Uh, this wasn't, I didn't write this, but her husband, who was her age, you know, her husband of many decades, had dementia and she was his caretaker. And after she died, you know, he didn't have anyone to take care of him. And he, and he lived for several years beyond that. You know, when she passed away, he knew she was going to surgery, but he didn't understand. So he was waiting outside for hours. And, you know, this, her untimely demise vastly reduced his quality of life. Um, mm-hmm. So... I think, going back to the company, why they do this, you know, I think sometimes these things could be forgotten um, in the normal course of doing business. So, having been a professional journalist now for basically your entire adult life, um, are you happy about that decision? Absolutely. I I mean, I have the best job in the world. So, I get to travel and meet people and tell stories and I have the freedom and autonomy to pursue the stories I'm interested in, so I'm pretty lucky. Do you see, I mean, we talked a little bit earlier about the automation of trading Mm -hmm. and stuff like that. Do you see this as an area that's going to continue to be interesting, or do you see moving into other forms of writing about money or anything like that? Yeah, I mean, I think it is definitely, it's an area that's going undergoing a rapid change, which is inherently interesting because everybody's kind of running to keep up with it and um, from our perspective mm-hmm. there's a lot of stories there um, you know a lot of industries right now because of globalization and technology are undergoing pretty intense changes and you know our role is to kind of decipher that and figure out how they affect people how companies and countries can adapt um, as a youngish sure. um, financial reporter in the era of Occupy mm-hmm. How do you how do you navigate your generation's relationship with mm-hmm. kind of hating Wall Street and kind of thinking a lot of the stuff should go away? That's a great question. You know, I haven't reported on Occupy. Yeah, um, I haven't been asked to go down there. You know, Fortune has done 
stories on it. Um, but to me, it just, given all of the things I've been having on watching over the last few years, mm -hmm. I think it solidifies my interest in writing about Wall Street because, you know, my role is not to go down and pro. And, I mean, my job is to not go down and protest. Um, but to sort of f understand what these banks are doing that are inspiring this kind of reaction. And, you know, as someone who makes a living kind of looking at these companies and analyzing them and trying to talk to you about them, I think it's only a great and good thing that more people are interested in what they're doing, um, whether it's good or bad. Do you think that the journalistic institution will learn from those experiences? Like, mm -hmm. will can journalism in any way prevent um, the excesses of Wall Street, or are we just watchers? Mm. I think can, yes, absolutely. You know, there's a lot of debate about whether or not journal business journalists did a sufficient job um, predicting or sort of exposing the subprime mortgage crisis. I was in college at the point, so I have no responsibility. Blowing <laughs> up my own spot a little. Um, but, you know, I, I think most people think that there's probably more skepticism towards that particular industry than there was in the period leading up, for sure. Right. And I think a lot of um, journalists are doing a, you know, a fantastic job exposing some of the bad practices. As someone who sort of taught yourself financial journalism from scratch without a background in it, were you looking up to other writers? Did you model your work on anyone's? Absolutely. Um, I have often looked up to sort of long-form writers. I would say long-form business writers in terms of... I love I love the long-form. Just, we're just going to audio SEO here. Put a copy right <laughs> um, You know, because to me, you know, I, obviously there's fabulous, fabulous writers at the Journal of Times yeah. who are really bringing these stories to light and... Um, but to me, you know, what I really wanted to learn how to do as a young features writer was to learn how to write features and write about business in a compelling way that sort of transcends just the usual audience and tell a narrative and, you know, really, um, convey stories. So there's a lot of excellent writers at Fortune who have been doing that for a really long time. Um, you know, James Vandler, David Whitford, Sean Tully, we have all these great writers, mm -hmm. um, and, you know, writers at other places. Um, you know, I was just telling someone about um, Susan Dominus at her Times Magazine. She did a fabulous profile of um, sort of the J.P. Morgan um, female executive who got in trouble because of the London Wales scandal. Oh, yeah. yeah so, you know, I, I have always looked up to her and her writing. Um, did you, when you say you look up to a writer like that, are you, mm -hmm. like, in terms of this, this piece on, on the spine cement, mm -hmm. um, do you dissect people's pieces and try and like when you structure a piece like that, where do you where do you start in that? Yeah, so when I read longer pieces, I'm often reading them with an eye to how they're structured. Um, who are they talking to? You know, a lot of that can be. I mean, there's the credits rule. You know, I talk to forty, you know, yeah. five former employees, whatever. But there's you know, you look at the where they're getting their information. Um, how they're using that information, how they're setting scenes, um, the chronology, whether the chronology is mixed up. I can't really read a long narrative piece um, without thinking about those things as I'm reading about them. And then when I'm you know, writing my own stories, thinking about what sort of moves I can steal or emulate. How, how do you um, 
in a piece like, uh, say, that piece about uh, Rodriguez, the sort of uh-huh. Dune and to a lesser extent, almost all of your pieces, you have to explain, um, in the, the case of this spine cement yeah. piece, explaining how the FDA works. How do you, how do you, how do you teach someone a pretty complicated system in a few paragraphs? Right. Have, have there any shortcuts you've come across, or? That's really the challenge, right? I mean, we, you know, this piece was. I think 8,000 words or something, and I just felt like I could, it was, everything was so, every sentence was like a fact that I really needed. You only have so much space to explain these topics that really require a lot more space. Sure. Um, and to not bore the reader to tears. Um, so I try to walk through, well, often I try, first thing I'll try to do with a complex topic is try to explain it verbally to someone else. Mm-hmm. Um, which is, I find, the best way to understand how to convey information in a way people actually Who, understand. Who's your guinea pig, usually, for this kind My of My editor, you okay. know, or, and uh, other people. I feel like explaining a, a financial instrument to a uh, editor at uh, for at Fortune is kind of... Uh, they're they're well, primed to understand a little bit more. You know, I, I usually write about industries that are not as heavily covered, and whether it's medical devices, um, I wrote... A couple of pieces I wrote last year were on arms exports, which we you know, had never written about, and uh, the railroad industry. So I often find I'm in the position of having to kind of True. learn, start from scratch, and then explain these oh, things. Um, so I think I start verbally, and then I just try to make sure it's like a very clear, concise explanation. Sometimes then, you know, we'll involve using analogies or sort of case examples, but... I never know how to frame this question, so I'm just. Gonna, but I feel it's worthwhile to ask. So, how much money do I make? <laughs> what is your home address? Um, <laughs> no, how do you feel about being an industry that has a very gender skewed um, byline? I'm so glad you asked that because um, there's a organization that puts out um, a breakdown of newsrooms. I think yeah. by and and they focus on literary magazines like the New Yorker. And yeah. And good gracious, I wish they would look at business journalism because... It must be the worst. No. Oh, really? Business newsrooms are full of women. Really? Fortune, I would say, is probably 50% female writers and editors. I know that is the same at a lot of places. I mean, look at the Times. Gretchen Morris and Greg, Suzanne Craig. I mean, the the best writers. So I really think, actually, business... This is shocking to a lot of people, but business journalism... Yeah, I, I thought I was all primed up. No, no, I learn something new every day. So that I'm, we're exposing this, actually, which is that um, there are many, many women in business journalism. I mean, it's, it's sort of double surprising to me because I assumed that the byline was heavily skewed because the people you're covering are uh-huh. of all Lost the industry is yeah. probably the most skewed male, um, whereas, let's say, a literary publication mm-hmm. covers books, which are... Actually, a heavily female market for the most part. I think like print books are like sixty forty or something like that. Um, business has to be one of the most male dominated sectors in, in the country. Have you have your interactions as a reporter dealing with a male dominated industry? I mean, I guess people must not be very surprised um, to encounter a female journalist if mm-hmm. they're such a high. But how has gender played into your reporting? And and have mm-hmm. have you? Wow, that was the most college thing I've ever said. <laughs> we'll just I'll cut your last response. Yeah, how do you how do you, how do you deal with the patriarchy? You know, I once joked to someone, they're like, "What's your job?" I said, "My job is riding in cars with old white men." But um, which is a joke, but it's probably true. <laughs> um, 
think because business is so bottom line driven, um, you know, I have a pretty clear mandate when I'm going into most interviews. And because I do have the time and the resources to spend time sort of burning up on information, you know, I um, have not found that it's been an issue for me in reporting. I think probably my age has been more of a, you know, a challenge. What kind of reactions have you gotten to that? Assuming that um, you're you know, I think just surprise and concern. <laughs> I've definitely encountered some disappointed faces. Oh, really? Um, but it's never been a huge issue once we start talking. Uh, Mina Kimes, uh, her new story is in the newest fortune the title of the story is bad to the bone bad to the bone it's um it hit the new stance today check it out it's online on fortune we put it in the show notes uh thank you to lauren for editing this thanks to my co-hosts max and evan atavist evan's company has a new story out called the stowaway check it out uh, i'll be back here next week Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.